Orgasmic Enlightenment, where the sexual and spiritual come together. I'm Kimanami, and I'm a holistic sex and relationship coach and a vaginal weightlifter. In this show, we explore all things intimate. I believe that our sexual energy is life force, creative energy, and we can use it to shape our worlds, strengthen our relationships, and self-actualize. I blend the most avant-garde information from neuroscience, ancient sexual practices like Tantra and Taoism, to renegade wellness modalities to show you how to create gourmet sex in your lives. Come one, come all. Quantum love and healing with Dr. Bruce Lipton. Love heals. We hear this a lot as a cliched phrase in the wellness world. What if I told you that we have plenty of science to back it up? On today's episode, we have the founder of epigenetics, Dr. Bruce Lipton. Decades ago, when science and biology were still operating from the paradigm that genes control destiny and you don't have any conscious control over your life or your health, everything that happens to you is a random accident. Well, Lipton broke out from that way of thinking via his Petri dish, which you'll hear about shortly. So he found that genetics were completely alterable and that our thoughts and feelings are the greatest determinants in our health. Rather than being passive victims of disease, he puts the responsibility squarely into our hands, our hearts, and minds to be able to fully direct our lives and health. No excuses because science, and this is the best kind of science. Here, metaphysics and biology meet. The old adage, thoughts are things, becomes a scientific fact in his work. And I love anything that proves humans have the ultimate creative power in their lives. I did a podcast episode a couple of weeks ago on sex, intimacy, and immunity, and I spoke about how when we are having gourmet sex, when we are all loved up and orgasm-filled, we develop not only an immunity to physical ailments, but we develop a spiritual resilience as well. We become immune to the negativity of others. We become immune to the mass programming and cultural conditioning that limits people's free thinking and ultimate potential. Your thoughts are more powerful than any medicine that exists on this planet. And that's a direct quote from Bruce. So when we're in a state of perpetual love and bliss, and I believe we can stay there 90% plus of the time, our world is changed. We live in another dimension. We still get challenges in life, but we meet them with grace and courage and ease. We are in a flow state. All right, so without further ado, Bruce H. Lipton, PhD, is an internationally recognized leader in bridging science and spirit, stem cell biologist, best-selling author of The Biology of Belief, and recipient of the 2009 Going Peace Award. He has been a guest speaker on hundreds of TV and radio shows, as well as keynote speaker for national and international conferences. Hi, Bruce, and welcome. It's so lovely to have you here. I'm so excited to discuss all things quantum physics, science, healing, intimacy, immunity, and it's a pleasure to speak with you today. 
Well, uh, I so appreciate this opportunity, Kim, because uh, we have some wonderful things to talk about. And what we're going to talk about is uh, involving self-empowerment, especially at a time when the world looks like it's getting out of control. Th this is a time for that self-empowerment. So uh, for me, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk to your wonderful audience. Excellent. And that's exactly where I want to start is the idea of self-empowerment. And there's a wonderful quote from you that I'd love for you to unpack for us. Your thoughts are more powerful than any medicine that exists on this planet. Well, uh, that's a story. So let's start off with what is medicine and why do we take medicine? And the answer is medicine is chemistry that uh, is involved with the communication inside your body. Inside our body, we know we have all these different organs. They all have their different functions, but there's chemistry that coordinates their functions and controls their behavior and all that stuff. So the idea of medicine was that we could make pharmaceutical signals, so to speak, chemicals that will go in the body and activate the things we want to activate. So that's the first premise of medicine. I say, well, how does it work? I say, because the chemistry uh, is a, a structure that is picked up by the cells. The cells read the environment through receptors, just like we're reading the environment, but they're very much more simple receptors or molecules that read light and sound and smell and taste and touch and all that. And I say, so why is it relevant? Well, if you want to talk to a cell, you have to send a signal to that cell. Uh, and naturally, the signals are coming from within our own body, controlling everything. But if it's not working right, the presumption is I take a drug, which is a signal, put it in the body and try to you know, repair the signal pathway that apparently wasn't working. So the first thing we have to understand is this. If a signal is affecting a cell, then by definition, there has to be a receptor on the cell to read that signal. Otherwise, the signal, the, the cell would never see it. So these are receptors that are proteins like antennas built into the cell. I go, so what does it mean? I say, well, if a drug made by a manufacturer is affecting you, then by definition, you already have a receptor for that drug. Because if you don't have a receptor, the drug wouldn't do anything. So I say, yeah, but if I already have a receptor, then question is, why do I have a receptor? Was it waiting, nature waiting for the pharmaceutical company to come up with a chemical that I could use this receptor? I go, no, it's silly. The receptors exist because we already have natural chemicals that engage those receptors. Any drug that you take can only affect you if there's an analog or equivalent of that drug in your body in the first place. So I go, so why is it relevant? I said, we have our own pharmaceutical company right up here. And we don't need to take these pharmaceutical drugs. And I go, well, what's the issue if it's not working? I go, when it's not working, we have a tendency to look below our head and say, down here in the body, there's things that are broken. Cells are stupid. Genes are all messed up <laughs> and all that. And then I go, well, let me correct a, an assumption here because we have this big emphasis that genes control our biology and our health. It turns out less than 1% of illness and disease is connected to genetics. Now, when you understand that there's a bigger number, that means over 90% of illness and disease has nothing to do with the mechanical nature of the biology. It's a response to the chemistry in our body that is mis or misunderstanding or miscontrolling the system, and now we're out of harmony, and now we're sick, and I go, what's wrong? I can't make the chemistry? I go, no, no. <laughs> that we are adjusting our biology through our consciousness. And you go, oh, that sounds new agey. I go, yeah, sure as heck 
sounds new agey, but it's the most fundamental science on this planet. Uh, two points to make. Point one, the most valid science on the planet is called quantum physics. There is no science that's ever been tested more or affirmed more. So of all the sciences, the most truthful is quantum physics. And so, so I go, because the first principle of quantum physics is consciousness is creating our life experience. So to me, right away, rule number one, most valid science says your consciousness is involved. Well, it still was a new agey idea, but then even my own research started to show, oh my God, the connection of mind, body, consciousness, cells, uh, I saw the connection and how it worked. Uh, and it worked like uh, simply, uh, I was uh, cloning what are called stem cells. Stem cells is just another word for embryonic cell. Everybody's got them if they're watching the show, because if you don't have stem cells, you would have died a long time ago. <laughs> and I say, why? A very simple reason is this. A body is made out of about 50 trillion cells. The cells are the living organism. The human, by absolute definition, is a community of 50 trillion cells. That's what we are. I go, so what's the relevance? I say, well, cells have a lifespan, and they die, and then we have to replace them. So every day we lose hundreds of billions of cells. Natural. Just, I mean, while we've been talking the last few minutes, we've lost millions and millions of cells are dying all the time. But fortunately, we have stem cells, embryonic cells in our body, that are replacing those cells. So if you don't have stem cells, you would have died because all your cells would have been dying and you wouldn't have replaced them. But if you're here talking and we're here alive, then you've got stem cells. And I say, they're embryonic cells, they could become anything. So I say, here's a, a, just a very quick view of where my whole world changed because I, as a medical school professor, as a teacher, was teaching medical students at genes control life because that was the curriculum at the time. And my research was I put one stem cell in a culture dish by itself, uh, and this is called cloning, because that one cell will divide every 10 hours, 12 hours, so uh, every day the, th the number of cells are doubling twice a day, versus one, two, four, eight, 16, 32, 64, boom, boom, boom. A week later, 30,000 cells in the Petri dish. Most important fact, they all came from one parent, one cell. So there's 30,000 genetically identical cells and what I did is I split them into three different Petri dishes, fine. And so all the cells had genetically identical, all the dishes had genetically identical cells in them. Uh, but what was different was the culture medium. And now all of a sudden, what the hell is culture medium? And the answer is this. It's the fluid in which we grow cells. And I say, well, what does it represent? Now, here comes the connector. It's the laboratory version of blood. So I look at human blood, see what's in it, make culture medium, and then feed cells with it because that's what cells live in. But I make it in the lab so I could change some of the combinations. So I created three different versions of blood, culture medium. And I fed each of the plates with a different version of this culture medium. I go, so what? In one dish, the cells form muscle. In another dish, they form bone. In a third dish, they form fat cells. I go, well, what controlled the fate? What controlled the cells to become muscle or bone? And the answer was, they all had the same genetics. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, my God. It was the environment that the cells were in that determined the fate of the cells. I go, why is that relevant? because the cells, the genes didn't have anything to do with decision-making. The cells were responding to the environment 
and adjusting the genetics to respond to the environment. And I go, what was the environment? Culture made him now step back. I'm growing cells in a plastic petri dish, giving them artificial blood. Now I'm telling you, as I said, under your skin, you have 50 trillion cells. You're a skin covered petri dish. 50 trillion cells inside your dish right now. I go, yes, and guess what? The original culture medium, blood, is what is controlling them. I say, so, but yeah, but what controlled whether it was muscle or bone or fat? I go, the chemistry of the blood culture medium control the fate. And then I say, well, in my skin covered dish, I got my the same cells and I have the culture medium. I say, yeah, but what controls the fate of my cells? I go, same as the cells in the plastic dish the chemistry of your blood. I go, oh, but in the lab, I make that chemistry. I go, yeah, but who makes the chemistry inside the skin dish? And I go, your brain is the chemist. I go, oh, that's the one controlling the chemistry. It's mixing the chemicals, making blood. Then I go, but what chemicals should the brain put into the blood? And all of a sudden it's like, whatever picture you hold in your mind the brain translates the picture into complementary chemistry. And that chemistry goes into the blood. So that the cells are adjusting their biology to what you perceive in your mind. You change your mind, you change your biology. We know this as science and when people talk about placebo effect. I go, what is that? I say, well, you're sick. Somebody gives you this brand new medicine. It's like the best, most futuristic medicine in the world. It's going to heal you. You get so excited. You take this pill. You get better. And then you find out the pill's a sugar pill. And then you're left with a very important question. Then what the heck healed you? Not the sugar pill, the belief in the sugar pill, which was a positive thought. The pill's going to heal me. I can see I'm going to get better. And you take it, and then it turns out sugar. It wasn't the, the pill. It was your belief of being better that created health. And everyone goes, yeah, placebo effect. And I go, but no one ever really emphasizes that negative thinking, which uh, placebo is positive thinking. What about negative thinking? And we don't talk about it. I say, you damn well have to talk about it. It's the most important insight for a reason, and that is this. As much as a positive thought creates a chemistry that enhances health, the complement of a negative thought is chemistry that compromises health. That, uh, that you can actually, through negative thoughts, create any illness, cancer, any, any illness, just by having negative thoughts. You can die from the belief that you're going to die. I go, oh, it's like placebo, but in reverse, I go, it's 100% exactly. It's the power of thought, positive or negative. It's the thought, <clears throat> excuse me, that is the power. And, and I say, but negative thinking puts chemistry in the blood that compromises our growth. And most importantly, the stress chemistry of negative thinking shuts down the immune system. And all of a sudden you go, well, wait a minute. Then in the moment of the world and the fear that you hear on the news every day of people dying and, oh, my God, a plague is coming and we're all going to die. I say, okay, translate that picture into chemistry, and the first thing that chemistry is going to do is shut off the immune system because stress shuts off the immune system. Just to, to back it up with a piece of science, okay, stress chemicals are given to patients that are going to receive a foreign organ transplant. I say, why? 
because the stress chemicals shut down the immune system. So when the transplant is put into the recipient, that foreign tissue doesn't cause an aggressive immune response. Immune response is now shut. <coughs> Excuse me. So the point is simply this, that when you have a stress, <coughs> stress image, the chemistry from the brain is going to put stress hormones into the system which is then going to impair the function of your immune system and open you up to any illness. And I say, any illness? I go, whatever picture you have in your mind will manifest. And all of a sudden you start to see people being so afraid, so afraid of being out of control, being afraid because people are dying all over the place and I'm going to be one of those. I go, you just took the first step to creating illness at that moment, at that moment. Uh, and so basically we are in an issue. And if I could summarize quickly, if that's okay about just what's going on. So we have a little vision. Every year there's a flu. Every year we talk about the flu. I say, what's flu? What's different about a flu? And I say, the viruses that cause a flu when they infect a cell cannot grow at body temperature. The cells have to be cooler than body temperature if they get too warm, the virus doesn't grow. So I go, so what does that mean? I say, winter time is when we start to breathe in colder air. And the air has to be warmed up before it goes to the lungs. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, it would cause a problem. So I say, as we breathe in colder air, uh, the body heat is used to warm it up. So by the time it gets into the lung, it's body temperature. And I go, yeah, but at the beginning of the track, the nose the throat, I say, the temperature in wintertime of those cells is a lot cooler <laughs> than body temperature. And that's why they call it a cold. When the cold air is present, it allows the virus to grow. So every year, wintertime coming, people, oh, the flu is coming. Yeah, because this is when we're going to breathe cold air. And every year, people get flu. No problem. Everybody knows about it. Everybody knows there's a time where we get sick, we cough, we sneeze, we do all that stuff. I go, everybody's used to that. And I go, because every year the viruses that are coming up every year are just modified versions of previous year's viruses. I say, so why is that important? Because when we've had previous exposure, we build up a memory of those viruses. So even if it mutates and forms a new version, we still have a memory of part of that virus. So when it infects us, we have a handle right away to slow it down and prevent the symptoms from getting too far away. And then I say, and what's different now? And I say, because the virus that we're experiencing right now presumably hasn't been in our population before. I go, so what does that mean? I say, well, we don't have any previous memory to you know, slow down the symptoms so that with an infection with this virus, the symptoms go higher uh, only because it takes the immune system a bit more time to bring it back down again. Okay, so I say, great, this is like every year, flu. I go, yeah, but people die. I go, but every year people die. And I go, it's not just people who are dying. I say, there's a group of people who are affected. I say, who are they? I say, the aged, the infirmed, those with health compromises. So like nursing homes become the big target, number one. Older people are in more desperate trouble than anybody else. People whose illnesses already exist and are compromising their immune system are even more compromised now when the virus shows up. So I say, it's the same group of people every year that die. 
about 0.1% of infected people, and they're the same people. I go, and what about this one? I say, well, it's going to be the same people, but a few more of them because it's a little more aggressive than in a normal year. I say, okay, fine. And then I go, so what does it mean? I say, most of the population will have no effect even by the virus. They've identified that up to 50% of the population that is infected has no symptoms. I go, relevant? I guess if you have no symptoms, you're not going to go to the doctor and say, I have the flu. <laughs> and I say, well, then who goes to the doctor? I said, those people that are already pushed to the edge, they go to the doctor. And I go, is this flu going to kill them because it's more aggressive? And I go, no, for a reason. If you can get to the ventilators or to the you know antiviral medications, medicine can handle this. You, you don't have to die. But who will die? I go, the same people who died every year anyway. Those are the ones. And if I come out with, you know, I, I like to offer like two different news broadcasts. Bulletin, bulletin. The annual flu is coming. It's more aggressive this year than it's been before. So take care of yourself. Take care of your health. Take care of your food by eating natural, organic, healthy food. Take vitamins and supplements to support yourself and change your thinking process so you don't get in fear. And I say, that's great. And then I come on with the other broadcast. The flu is here. The coronavirus is killing people. It could kill a million, over two million people. And so you got to be very afraid. And there's all kinds of problems. And I go, wow, that second broadcast scares the hell out of me. I go, the first broadcast is flu. Yeah, it happens every year. Mm -hmm. Second broadcast is, I'm going to die. <laughs> and I go, ooh. Now that's called nocebo, right. which is the no, there's negative thinking. I say, you're afraid of the flu, and now what have you done? I am afraid. And I go, oh, now you've just opened Pandora's box, baby. You just opened up the door that says, my immune system is weak. Got a virus out here anywhere? <laughs> yeah. So it really comes down to this. Who are the people dying? The same cohorts of people that normally die. And every now and then, like, I love it, one, one big article, a baby died from coronavirus. I, of course, I don't know what the prehistory of that baby was in the first place, but a baby, I say, what does the news say? A baby, yeah, but when you spread that everywhere, then all of a sudden, oh, babies died from immune oh, You know, and I go, one baby died, and that was the news, okay? And, I, and so there's a big issue here, and the big issue is we're being scared to death. And that's the literal translation of the negative thinking of result of a fear over a virus that it's not that lethal. As I said, even with severe respiratory issues, that's controllable. And, uh, and just go back. It's like, so we're in it. So what am I going to do? I say exactly the thing we just said. Take care of your health. Take care of your health. Number one. You know, we talked about nutrition. Take care of your health. Supplements, vitamins especially vitamin C, which enhances immune system functions great. And the more important one is get the fear out of your life because the fear is the bigger problem of all, okay? And the fear, well, the death rate is so much higher than previous. And I go, well, here's the interesting story about that, and that is how do you determine death rate? The answer is you look at the number of people died, and divided by the number of confirmed cases, and then you get a death rate. What percent of the people dying? And normally 0.1%. I say, what is it today? Three, four percent, man, 30, 40 times more. I go, wow, 
how's such a it's so deadly and here it is the numbers are false the numbers are false for this reason that it's the number of dead divided by the number who have the virus i go yeah but what and i say who went to the doctor you probably already had the virus. You didn't even go to the doctor. Why? Because if I have a simple flu, what the hell am I going to go to the doctor for? And it turns out up to 50% of the people who carry the virus have no symptoms. I say, so what's irrelevant? I say, wow, if you took the entire population that was infected by this virus and then divided it into the number of dead, it would be less than 1%. And I say, why is it relevant? Because that 3 to 4% is the scary number. If you bring it back down to the range of a little more aggressive than normal, then all of a sudden the fear is not the same fear. And this is what people have to recognize. The story we are getting is a story that enhances the fear. And the more fear you have, the greater your opportunity of getting sick. And so uh, I just wanted to thank you for that little moment, I hope, of clarity to get people to recognize, okay, yeah, you can get the flu and you've had it every year anyway, but if you take care of yourself, you will be okay. And taking care of yourself includes not just the physical, physiological stuff, but this mental picture. And so uh, thanks for giving me a little platform to talk about that, Kim, I appreciate it. Oh, I love it. And I agree 100% that the numbers appear that they would be skewed because only the people who are really ill are going in to get tested. And the people with either no symptoms or mild symptoms, they're not getting tested. And if you actually had those numbers in the mix, you'd have a completely different scenario. So I pulled, just for some perspective, I pulled some numbers out um, from January the 1st to March the 25th of deaths. Um, worldwide. So it's 21,000 by coronavirus, 113,000 by the seasonal flu, 228,000 from malaria, 250,000 from suicide, 313,000 from traffic fatalities, 390,000 from HIV AIDS, 580,000 from alcohol, 1,162,000 from smoking, 2 million from cancer, 2,300,000 from hunger. So if only we had the same amount of care and compassion and concern for all of these other causes, but you know, this is a whole other topic that we don't necessarily need to get into. But yeah. what I'm more concerned about is the amounts of freedoms that are being threatened and taken away from people under the guise, the Trojan horse of coronavirus, rather than the actual fear of coronavirus. Uh, absolutely. You know, it's very hard because isolation is a good idea. And the reason is not that it's going to change the number of people getting sick. What it's going to do is change the progression of the people getting sick. You say, so what does that mean? I say, in a normal flu year, people get sick and go to the doctor and some die. Yeah, but so few people go to the doctor because when we call it a normal flu, nobody just shows up if they got a sneezy thing going. And I say, but if we allow the number of people to get infected increase more and more and more by day, then there's a bigger demand on the medical system, which is totally unprepared to deal with the problem. So the isolation isn't because I want to isolate because I'm afraid. The isolation is maybe I'll contaminate somebody else. And I don't want to over, you know, put an over demand on a system that can't handle it as it is. So it's not that I'm afraid of the death or anything. I'm just going, you know, look, 
if I can help keep that number from jumping so high that it over, overwhelms the system, then I'm going to contribute to it. That's, that's my job. Okay. I'm not afraid of anything about this at all. I have no fear, you know, and, and the relevance about that is that it's really the fear that is propagated day by day because people uh, have a morbid curiosity more or less. It's like, Oh my God, there are more God today. You know, it's like, <laughs> as you just said, and the numbers are so critical. We have no consciousness of the things that are just killing people so fast. It's unbelievable. I, I forgot how many thousands and tens, tens of thousands of children die every day from malnutrition on this planet. And I go, did anybody care? There are, you know, thousands of times more people dying from mal malnutrition and nobody gives a damn. And it's like, you're right. You, you're putting a focus on something that uh, is overtaking you when it, it's, it's nothing compared to what's going on in the other realms of health. Yeah, agreed. So let's, you know, we were talking about the impact of fear, right? And how it depresses the system, it suppresses the immune system. And then the opposite of that is love. And so when we talk about the heart and the power of the heart, and this is something that you've talked about as well. You know, this idea of the heart as the, I can't remember, like there's the gut brain, the heart brain, the, <laughs> the mind brain. Which one is the <laughs> second and third? It's like there's an intelligence. To, yes, to there's the an heart. intelligence in the heart. And so you talk yeah. about how in the new version of healthcare, we realize that the thoughts, the spirit, and the heart. So I want you to play such a big role. So I'd like you to talk more about the heart and the, the resonance, the intelligence of the heart. And, you know, what does it mean then? How do we cultivate an open heart? Because presumably that's the state the heart needs to be in to function as this powerful system. Well, the first thing is to recognize the heart has been talking to you all the time, whether you've listened to it or not. It's always talking to you. I go, what does that mean? I say, we interpret our world with our brain through the senses that come in. Okay, and basically uh, these are experiences and then we make a, a, a pattern of life based on those experiences coming in. And, uh, and this becomes important for the, the simple reason is because uh, the knowledge that's coming in could be false, it could be true, but if you just buy it, you, there's no false or true, that's just knowledge, okay? That uh, I go, let me give an analogy to a math thing because that was the way I like to think about it. And it is this. Uh, most of us have taken some course in algebra 100 years ago. And there was an interesting part of the course that was like a puzzle where you would get a very large equation. And the idea was to reduce, that's what the name, reduce the equation to a small size. And, you know, where you cancel things out and balance things, blah, blah, blah. So I say, at the top of the page, you have the very large equation. And then you reduce it one step and it gets a little smaller. And then the next part of, down the next page, you reduce it another step. And by the time you get to the bottom of the page, you've reduced it a number of different steps to the smallest one. And I say, well, did you get the answer right? And the answer is, well, a lot of the times, but uh, sometimes you got it wrong. I go, how'd you get it wrong? I say, if I make one error in any of the, let's say, six steps to get to the bottom, one interpretational error, the answer is wrong at the bottom of the page. That's it. So I say, 
when we try to use our consciousness to interpret what we should do, where we should be, who should we be with, what's going on, we go through our checklist, mental checklist. And I say, it's the same as reducing the equation. And, uh, and you want to get to the conclusion. I go, great. But I said, one error in an interpretation, equation's gone. It doesn't work anymore. So I say, well, that's what I'm left with. And I go, well, that's if you use consciousness to read the world. The heart reads the world, but in a different fashion. It doesn't see objects and things like that. What the heart sees is vibrational energy. It responds to vibration. And I go, well, interesting, since quantum physics reveals there is no such thing as matter, that everything is vibration, then the heart is reading the reality of an energy field. I go, that's what it does. And I say, well, it's interesting because when energy comes together, they don't, they don't just go one through the other. It's like ripples on a pond. When the ripples are coming together, they engage with each other. I say, well, there's two extremes of energy coming together when the ripples come together. I say, one, when the ripples are in harmony and they're both going up and they're both going down, they're both going up and they come together, they enhance each other. So two low-powered waves, where they meet, the energy of each wave adds up so that the composite is higher energy, a higher vibe, okay? Uh, and I'll give the opposite, then we'll put names on people understand. I say the opposite is this, what if one wave is going up and the other wave is going down? And when this one's going down, the other one's going up, they're out of phase, they're not in harmony. I say when those two waves come together, what happens? I say they don't add up, but they cancel each other out, cancellation. And I say, uh, this, this is where the energy disappears. So I can bring two energies together that enhance each other. Or I can extremely bring two other energies together, cancel each other. And I go, let me give the scientific names because now it's like, what's he talking about? When the energies come together, it's called interference. And when they come together and add up, it's called constructive interference. When two energies come together and they cancel each other out, that's interference, but it's called destructive interference. And everybody goes, oh, there's a lot of science slipped in. I go, no, let me simplify it now because this is the point. We experience this in our life. The heart reads the energy fields. When energy is in harmony with us, constructive interference, then we amplify our energy and it's called good vibes. How do I like this? Because when it's in my presence, I feel better than when it's not in my presence. So this is a good vibe. What does it do? Life is energy. More energy, more life. That's a simple fact. So if two energies come together and they enhance, enhance each other, they give us more life. And I go, yeah, it's called good vibes, constructive interference. But there are vibes out there that will cancel your vibes. And, and these are called bad vibes. I said, what are bad vibes? You lose energy. I say, you know, if you've been in a situation where you're seemingly like out of control, you don't know where you are, it's a scary place or whatever, you can feel all of a sudden a loss of energy in your body. It's called bad vibes. It's a warning. What's the warning? Well, if energy is life, what is bad vibes? Death. <laughs> Good vibes is life. Bad vibes, death. I go, so why is it relevant? Because through history, we have been programmed to use our conscious mind to interpret the world in which we live. But that's based on interpretation. Someone could teach me a fact that was wrong if I use it as a positive, you know, the correct fact and put it in the equation. My equation's gone, okay? So I go, well, that's how we were programmed. I say, you know what? In the very beginning, we also recognized this. We had feelings. You could feel things. 
And then we were programmed not to go by the feelings, go by what the person says. I go, well, there's a problem. I say, why? Because if a person, let's just say you're using a person in this case, could be anything, could be a plant, a person, an animal, I don't care what it is, it's something in your field. If that entity in your field enhances you, you want that entity in your field because it gives you power, okay? If that entity in the field has a very negative energy, you can feel that energy and it's sort of telling you don't go there, okay? But then we're programmed not to go by that energy, but now to go by the program, the consciousness. I go, oh, well, then you stop looking at the world through the best interpretation of the world, which was the energy. Okay. So all of a sudden it says, oh, my goodness. And the nature is this, is that the vibes are information. They've always been information. Good vibes are vibes that your body is telling you this enhances your life. I have more energy and more alive. So things that give you good vibes are really things that are in harmony with you. And then in contrast, when something in your presence takes away that energy, it's bad vibes. It's a warning that this is taking energy out of your life. Since life is energy, taking energy out, you're going the wrong way. Then there's a person who has bad vibes and you say, but I'm not going to listen to the vibes. I'm going to listen to what this person is saying. I go, oh, my God, you just messed up the system because the true person was the vibe. The words are any damn thing that person makes up. So, you know, not paying attention to the vibes was the biggest mistake that we had learned as kids. And the fact was why, because if we would be more sensitive to using that system, use it or lose it, if we were more sensitive to using that system, we would find that we wouldn't be find our place. We wouldn't be in wrong places. We would always be finding a place where we're supposed to be because uh, you read the vibe. I mean, uh, my simple conclusion. Let me just a uh, picture. Here's a snail. It comes out of an egg. There's no mother. There's no father. It's thrown into the world. I say, how does a snail know where to go and what to do? Nobody taught it. There wasn't anything. I say it has one gauge on its dashboard, the energy gauge. I say, what does it mean? When it's going toward life and going in the right place or, or in, the, in the presence of a plant that enhances that energy, the snail will eat that plant or will always move toward that positive side. But if the snail starts moving somewhere and the energy starts to go down, the snail will immediately turn around and go, that's the wrong direction. I got to go this way. And so the whole life is guided. And every organism from bacteria to humans the primary communication is to read the vibrations. And when we defer and don't read them, you just, you lost your path. You lost your path. Uh, and therefore it's really time for us to come back and start to recognize that energy, which is read by the heart is the compass that should tell us if we're in the right place or the wrong place. So uh, the big message in the end is we have to stop coming from our head and start using uh, the information provided by our heart because it's just going to read the energy. It's not going to talk about the details. It just says, is this energy good or energy bad? It's, that's the beautiful part. It's not, it's not a discussion, really. It's like it's either more energy or less energy. Which one? <laughs> and if we use that, as I said, as a compass, we end up being in the right place. And in relationships, this is really critical because if you're judging by what people say the, and you don't judge by the energy you feel, there's a problem in this, in this relationship.
Right. So let's segue into relationships then in like intimate relationships and talk about the honeymoon effect. So there is a similarity. I think you you can go into this from the more biological scientific perspective, but I've always been of the mind and I've seen this in my work and I talk about this in my work that people can have lifelong passion and connection and that it doesn't just have to die off after this obligatory, I've seen this number over and over again, two year period, like nature is so such a trickster and tricks you into falling in love so you can get together, but then it's all downhill from there. And this seems to be like, it seems to be put forward is this scientific fact, you know, that this is the truth. And I've said, no, like, you know, there's, yes, there's an initial phase of courtship and and I love the way that you phrase it and I'll let you take it from there but of conscious attention that we put forward and if we were simply to maintain that conscious attention throughout the course of the relationship we can continue to be in this transcendent really epic beautiful state with each other and so I'd love to hear you talk about that you know and what you see as the way for people to maintain and stay in that state of the honeymoon effect. Well, yeah, because first of all, I never even believed in the honeymoon for the first 40 years of my life. I thought that was some Hollywood gimmick thing, and I kept trying, and it wasn't working, so I kept questioning, I can't be real. Uh, But with the knowledge I gained from the cells and understanding how consciousness is shaping the behavior and genetics of the cell, and then start to recognize there are two levels of of mind. When we say the mind controls us, yeah, that's a fact. But when you say the mind, it sounds like there's this one thing called the mind and that's making all the control. And I go, well, the problem is there's two minds and and we put them together, they function as one, but they're two separate entities. And each mind has a different way of functioning and a different way of learning. And if you don't understand that, that these are are two working together minds, you don't understand it, then you're completely lost. What the hell is mind? So let me just uh, quickly, as you mentioned very quickly, is that there's two levels of mind. There's the mind that comes from the brain of the conscious mind, okay? And the conscious mind is connected to our spirituality, our uniqueness, our identity. It's part of what is called the prefrontal cortex, right behind your forehead, a lobe of brain that's new in evolution. And that's the one that connects us to source, okay? So each of us has a different conscious mind. But I said, there's another mind that was there before this conscious mind evolved. I said, there was a brain in an organism that doesn't have the kind of consciousness we have. I said, what was the brain doing? I said, well, what we call today's subconscious is what that brain was doing. I said, what is that? It's an automatic device. It basically adjusts the heart rate, the breathing rate, the body temperature, takes care of us without thinking. And, uh, but it's, it learns from experiences like programs. So that uh, uh, the Pavlov story of ring a bell and then, you know, shock the dog. And there's a point every time the bell rings and then followed by a shock, the dog begins to learn. What's the experience? Holy crap, the bell just rang. I'm going to get a shock. (laughs) And and so basically, uh, you don't even have to give the shock. You just ring the bell and the mind already goes into the program. I'm getting shocked. That's how it works. Okay, so. The mind uh, in the subconscious, it it learns programs. That's exactly what it is, just like a computer. It's got programs in it. Uh, And and I say what's real interesting is the things that we do that we repeat over and over again, programs are really cool so you don't have to relearn them. So when did we learn how to walk? This is a subconscious program. And I say, thank God I got a subconscious because it was before two when I learned how to walk and I'm still walking. 
I didn't have to relearn again. I think, you know, that's really great because if you had to wake up every day and learn how to walk, you'd never get anywhere. So I say, oh, the subconscious is good when the programs that are helping us are good. But what if about a program is negative? I go, well, <laughs> that's unfortunate because that's the program. If it's positive or negative, the nature of the program, the character of your life is positive or negative based on that program. So I go, okay. I go, you buy a brand new computer. You get it home from the store and it has an on button. You push on and it's called booting up. It's ready. I say, okay, just bought a brand new computer computer push on it booted up now i say do something you know uh, make a drawing write a essay do something i go oh no i can't do it i say why not you don't have any programs oh the computer with an operating system is not useful unless there's a program to operate so a child during its development the first part of the brain that develops is the subconscious, the programming part. And when a child's in the last trimester of pregnancy, the operating system is ready, but now it needs programs. So between the last trimester of pregnancy and age seven, the brain is operating at a vibrational frequency lower than consciousness. And say vibrational frequency, very quick, put wires on a person's head, it's called electroencephalograph. I read brain function. There are different levels of vibration in that function. And the lower level is called theta, which a child is in predominantly through age seven. I say, what is theta? Theta is imagination and character. So that's why kids under age seven can have imaginary playtime. They can have a tea party and they pour nothing into the cup and they drink it and they talk about how that nothing was the most wonderful tea they ever had. Ride a broom, it's a horse. You know, this is theta. But theta is hypnosis. I say, why is that important? Because think of this, how many rules, if I had to write a book, how many rules are required to become a functional member of a family and a functional member of a community to be participant? You gotta have rules. I say, Jesus, there's so many rules, you can't give an infant, here's a book, go study this and then you'll be ready to be a member of the family. No, how does a child learn? And the answer is the first seven years in theta is hypnosis. They learn behavior by observing the behavior of others and downloading that behavior. So the fundamental programs in our subconscious mind did not come from us. They came from observing mother, father, family, community, downloaded. I said, these are fundamental programs. I go, absolutely. And I go, uh, bad part of the story is there was no conscious mind to filter the program saying, that's a good program, that's a bad program. With no filtering, you got good programs, you got bad programs. Yeah, I, I learned how to walk because that was a damn good program, glad I did it. But I also learned how to make a relationship, how? I watched my mother and father and downloaded them. I go, ooh, well, had I had a belief filter, <laughs> I wouldn't have kept that program. <laughs> that was a limiting program in my life anyway. So I go, okay, so some programs are good, some programs are bad, we run our life like that. And I go, okay, by age seven, we begin then to become operators so we can run the program. So I can make the spreadsheet, draw the drawing, write the essay, I can use the program for what I want. But then I'm also using the program that I got. <laughs> so my behavior is in some way controlled by this program. Okay, and I say, yeah, it is. But then I say, but the conscious mind is free to think. Ah, we are free to not do that program. 
I can change that program. I can do what I want. I go, yeah, you can. Now comes the problem. I have free choice, conscious mind, program, subconscious mind. I go, yeah, what? I go, when, and this is the crux of the entire problem. When I am thinking, my conscious mind is preoccupied with a thought. I go, so what? I go, thoughts are not outside. Thoughts are inside. Every time I'm thinking, my attention to outside goes away. I'm not paying attention because I'm focusing on an inside. What's going on in my head? I go, well, if I'm driving my car and I have a thought, does that mean I lost control of the car? I go, with your conscious mind, you did. But then subconscious is autopilot. So the moment thinking occurs, whatever you were doing, walking, talking, driving the car, things that you know how to do, subconscious just gets in behind the seat. I'm autopilot. I take over. Now, the problem is this. This is the problem that we really want to deal with. And that is the conscious mind is you. It has your wishes and desires. That's conscious. When conscious is controlling, you go, you're driving toward wishes and desires. When subconscious is controlling, you're driving toward program. If the programs were all good, that would be really great. But since about 70% or so are believed to be disempowering and self-sabotaging and limiting beliefs, uh, 70% of the programs when you get in subconscious are not going to support you. So I go, yeah, but okay, big number. How much of my life is controlled by the wishes and desires, conscious mind, and how much is controlled by the program subconscious mind? Oh, my God, only 5% of our life is coming from wishes and desires because 95% of the day we are thinking. I go, so what does that mean? I say, well, the moment you're thinking, you're not paying attention. <laughs> I go, what does that mean? I go, well, when I'm not paying attention, then my life is controlled not by my wishes and desires, but by my programs that I got from who? My mother, my father, my siblings. I go, oh, okay. So here comes the point. Average everyday life for us, 5% toward uh, moving toward wishes and desires, 95% playing programs. When I'm playing a negative program, do I see it? And the answer is no. I say, why not? I said, because where's your attention? It's looking inside. So whatever the hell is coming out in your program, you're not seeing it, but everybody else does. I go, so what does that mean? So I say, Kim, this is the same story I've said for 30 years, so I'm going to repeat it because I haven't found a better one. I hope I find a better one because same story. But the story is this. You have a friend. You know your friend's behavior very well, and you know your friend's parent. And one day you see your friend has the exact same behavior as the parent, so you want to, you know, you want to tell your friend, hey, Bill, you're just like your dad. And then I say, back away from Bill. Bill immediately goes ballistic. How the hell can you compare me to my dad? I'm nothing like my dad. And I go, what does that mean? Because half the audience is already laughing because they've already had this experience. I said, that's the most profound story in the world for this reason. Everybody else can see that Bill behaves like his dad because 95% of the time he's playing those programs. The one who can't see it is Bill. I said, well, why Bill can't see it? And the answer is, where's Bill's attention when he's playing the programs? Inward. So Bill is the only one that doesn't see the program Everybody else is exposed to the program. So if he had bad programming, his life, when he's not paying attention, is an expression of bad behavior. I go, so why is it relevant? And then here comes the punchline. We are all Bill, every one of us. And I say, what's the relevance? I say, well, then most of the day, we're not really doing behavior that takes us to where we want to go. We're doing behavior that we've been programmed to do. And if that's negative, like Bill, huh, 
we only see the result. Life isn't working. And I don't know why. And I said, what do you mean you don't know why? And the answer was because when you were playing those negative behaviors, you didn't see it. So you have no reason to understand why it didn't work. All you see is the result. And I go, so what's the consequence? The answer is we struggle through life with great wishes and desires, failing in them. And because we don't see them, guess what our consciousness says? <gasps> that person is responsible. That person is responsible. This is responsible. What? I wanted to be successful, so it must have been them. Obvious thought, but it is no. The story of Bill. You didn't see it. You sabotage yourself. We're creating. This is what consciousness, uh, this is what quantum physics said right away. Consciousness is creating this, but you didn't see it. So I go, so what's the story with the honeymoon? Because from a guy who had no wonderful programming about relationships, I struggled for years until I took the message of the cells and started to recognize that the behavior of my biology was controlled by my thoughts, which were changing into chemistry, which was controlling my biology, that if I wanted to change my life, I had to change my thoughts. I was part of it, started to become aware of those thoughts. And then all of a sudden I say, yeah, but people all of a sudden sometimes find themselves in the honeymoon. What's the honeymoon? My God, heaven on earth, wishes and desires made manifest, joy, everything, beautiful, love, God is blessing. I go, how'd you get a honeymoon when your life sucked all the way up until this moment? Your life could suck every day and then you meet somebody 24 hours later, heaven on earth. What the heck happened in 24 hours? And the answer, is so profoundly important and simple. And that was this. It is recognized by science that when we fall in love like that, we stop thinking. We stay what is referred to as being mindful, meaning stay in the present moment, stop thinking. And I go, of course that's true. You've been looking for this partner your entire life. They show up. Is this a time to think and not pay attention to what's going on? Of course not. So when we're put in that, thrust in that position of, this is what I was looking for. The thinking stops, the living begins. And this is called the honeymoon because you're living your experience. And I say, and then how come it doesn't last? And then the answer is simple. Because no matter how much love and mindfulness you're in, today's world is such a busy place that inevitably we have to start thinking about, oh my God, I have chores, I have responsibilities, I got jobs, and I'm thinking. And I go, and what happens when you're thinking? The behavior that you are generating with your wishes and desires, conscious mind, gives rise to an opportunity to play the behavior you got from your family, and you don't see it. So here's, you know, the scenario is simple. It's something like this. Uh, uh, my partner, Margaret, and I are deepest in the honeymoon. We're loving each other. Everything is fabulous. Everything is great. Uh, and I happen to be thinking about, oh my God, I got to go to the school and I got to do the lecture and blah, blah, blah. I'm thinking, Margaret comes in and asks me some very simple question. Uh, uh, and in my moment, at uh, that moment, I'm not operating from me. I'm operating from program. And all of a sudden I play my father's program, which I don't see like Bill. I just played it and it was a blah, blah, blah. And she looks at me with, I love it, the usual phrase is, who are you? Where did that come from? Stop. Where was I coming from? Where was my conscious mind at that moment? 
my conscious mind wasn't paying attention to the present moment. It was thinking about what I had to do. So then the behavior that came out didn't come from my conscious mind. It came from my subconscious. Yeah, but if it's from the subconscious, like Bill, I didn't see it. So all of a sudden, Margaret goes to me, what kind of behavior is that? And then I'm going like now consciously going, what is she talking about? Because I didn't even see what I just did. It was automatic program. And all of a sudden I say, why is it relevant? Because that automatic program is obviously not something I'm proud of or want to have in my life, but she has to live with it. And so we've had a relationship and all of a sudden for the first time a compromise comes in. Oh my God, sometimes Bruce is an idiot. You know, it's like, how, how much can I, you know, well, he's not an idiot that much. So, okay, so I accept. Sometimes he's an idiot. I compromise when he's an idiot. Okay. But that was the first time. <laughs> The next time she catches me and a different behavior comes out, that's like, oh, that's another behavior that's not that good. Okay, but we're still having a great time, so let's just stay in a relationship. But sometimes now Bruce is blah, blah, twice, <laughs> okay? And so another compromise. And I go, yeah, but every time one of these behaviors starts showing up from the past, it puts Margaret in a situation of, do you want to live here with that behavior? And I'm the one that's going, I have no idea what the hell you're talking about because these behaviors come out unconsciously. And there's a point where a relationship that was so beautiful and so heaven on earth ends up being crap and the whole thing falls apart. And you go, what the hell happened in this great honeymoon? The answer was this. You created the honeymoon with wishes and desires and you lost the honeymoon with programs that you can't see. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my God. It wasn't outside stuff. It was inside stuff. I was causing my own creation by using a program that's not supporting me. And all of a sudden, the honeymoon disappears. And then I go, well, does that mean we're all doomed? <laughs> uh, uh, and the answer is, well, if you don't change the programming, it doesn't bode well. And that you can change the programming. I say, so what does that mean? Just the conclusion is simple. If I took all the programs that are negative in my life, and rewrote them in a positive faction way of doing it. I said, what would the result be? And I say, whether I'm using my conscious creative mind or now using my subconscious with his creative wishes and desires, my life would be exactly the same. I could have a honeymoon every day of the year, whether I'm even paying attention or not. Why? Because if I went to my automatic and I got programs of love and harmony and juicy, you know, everything, then even when I'm not paying attention, I'm still here in that world and, and all of a sudden it says that is the destination because the reality was we came to this world not to suffer not to struggle we came to a garden and we're supposed to be enjoying the garden and yet the programs have consistently disempowered us by negative programs that interfere and throw monkey wrenches in it to men, this is a really a very important part coming from the boy side of me uh, it's simple I said you know, it's interesting from a boy's perspective, you can see women, how sensitive they are and they have emotions and that they have this great bonding and all this kind of stuff. And then in guys, we don't have the same thing. I go, but why not? Then I go back and I realize as a boy growing up, what did I learn as part of the program? And the answer was to be insensitive. The, the old thing was like somebody would hit you on the shoulder, you know, hit you with a fist. Uh, ah, you flinched. You, you see, you were sensitive, you know, uh, and if you expressed any sensitivity, you were a pussy and it's like, ah, you know, it was sort of like you're a wimp and all that. And, and so what did we learn as men, as programming in culture is not to be sensitive. 
I go, why did we learn that? And the answer was simply this, the powers to be understood the programming that how can I send you to war if you're sensitive? If you're sensitive, I can't give you a gun and ask you to kill somebody. You'd look at me like in horror. What do you mean kill somebody? But now we're programmed. No sensitivity. I can go out there and kill that person right now if you want me to. I go, so men have been desensitized to the relationship that women are allowed to express. And then when women and men try to come together and the women are left with, that man is so insensitive. <laughs> I go, it's not his intention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 95% of the day he's playing a damn program. And if he could learn about that program, there's an opportunity to change it. I said, well, how do you learn about it? And the first thing is this, not through arguments. And that's unfortunately how these programs manifest in relationship. They end up creating an argument. And then there's the vision. And then there's all the other stuff that falls out from argument. I say, what would be different if I had a way about it? And the answer is something like Margaret and I practice. And that was that. If I came up with one of my stupid programs that wasn't encouraging a relationship, it didn't turn into an argument. It turned into, do you really want to do that? What? Well, you didn't see what you just did? Oh, let me explain it to you. And all of a sudden it's like, ah, no, I don't want that behavior. Now I have an option to understand what I need to change. And then I can go about changing it. I say, so what was the result? That when old programs show up in the right environment, you can use that as information so you can rewrite the program. In the wrong environment, it'll turn into an argument, separation, heat, fire, boom, explosion, and all that. And so really what we have to understand is we operate from programs 95% of the time. And that if we understand this and adjust the programs, then heaven on earth does not have to be 5%. Heaven on earth could be 100% of your daily life on this planet. And I'm very honored to have a partner like Margaret who... Together, we understood this, and together, we worked on things, on changing this, so that we have a honeymoon every day for 22, 23 years now. Why? Because those negative programs that would have come up have all been rewritten, or most of them have. You know, We don't experience, we haven't had a fight in years. I have no idea what that's about anymore. And it really throws a monkey wrench and make up sex, because uh, (laughs) you don't have an argument. What the hell are you going to do? So... (laughs) Uh, the issue is, is really profoundly important, and it's what, what you're trying to do in, in your work, Kim, is let's redirect consciousness. Because when you redirect it and know who you are and why you're here, you came here to experience heaven on earth. You've been programmed, so you've been manipulated by powers to be that can make men go kill each other with a gun without any consciousness or sensitivity to that reality Uh, and and then the women are left high and dry why because the men have been programmed to be lout (laughs) Uh, you know and now the the conversation is not together the conversation is missing and because it's so emotional and so sensitive that if it's not done right it's more likely to explode than to heal uh, and this is what we have. And, you know, let me, and this is so important because let's conclude with this very important point at this moment. And that is what? We have been programmed. 95% of our life comes from that program that we don't even see what the hell that program is because it operates 
subconsciously, sub, below, conscious. It's operating. And I say, so if you're in a relationship with somebody, you're in a relationship with two individuals, the one who they really want to be in their conscious mind, the one that has the idea of love and wishes and desires and heaven on earth, or the program one that they got from wherever they came from. Unfortunately, it's not balanced. It's 95% program. So that most people are living lives that they have no idea what the hell they're doing. All they say is a result. Whatever it was, it didn't work today. And I go, so what was the result? And I go, I'm not a religious person, so I'm not bringing this on a base of religion, but I'm bringing it on the basis of what a profound, important statement. And apparently it's attributed to Jesus. The last things he said on that cross was, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I go, that applies to everything. Right now it applies to everything. Those people around us who are acting like I was going to say shitheads, but that's a bad word, so I'll say crapheads. <laughs> uh, those people are around us, uh, and we only stick with what they're presenting, that's not the real person. The real person is underneath that, covered up by a program. And if we can forgive them for their program, it doesn't mean we have to live with them or be with them while they have that program, but if we don't mix them up with the program, if we separate their spiritual self from the program they're playing, I can forgive their spiritual selves. I'm not necessarily going to forgive the program. If they want to keep the continue of the same program, well, I don't have to stay there. That's my choice. But the reality is, it's not them. It's the damn program. Uh, uh, and this is the lesson. So if relationships could just use those words, you know, forgive them, they know not what they do. That other person did not know what they just did. Forgive them and work it out. Then this divorce rate of up to or over 50% would virtually disappear because people met each other on who they really wanted to be before they reverted back to who they've been programmed to be. And if we could be what we wanted to be, then the whole damn thing would resolve itself instantly. And I think what you're talking about is the crux of my work, which is about conscious relationships, right? Is like we all have whatever you want to call it. It can even be karma and the conditioning that we absorb growing up, the programming, as you say, trauma that's happened to us. And then the work is to try to piece through that. And the only way, in my view, that a couple can make it through to the other side is they both have to be on the same page and have the same commitment exactly. to, yes, I know that you have a subconscious. Yes, I know that you have programming. Yes, I know that you have trauma. And when we see it, we're both going to help each other compassionately, lovingly to call it out, bring it to the surface, bring it to the conscious mind, and then work through it and resolve it. But that's a conscious relationship. And that's not what most people have. Most people are reacting and frustrated. And then they rationalize and buy into this story that, oh, after a certain amount of time, relationships just plummet. And that's just the way it is. Because yes, that's what they've been modeled. And they don't have an alternative story. No, and you got into the relationship based on a whole different scenario than the one that you ended up with, because the relationship context was spirit to spirit, and then it goes uh, subconscious to subconscious, and then that's a different game at yeah. that point. Yeah, We're not the subconscious, but people don't recognize the difference between us and the subconscious. Yeah. So let's round up this talk with 
one of my absolute favorite concepts of yours, which is the idea of protection versus growth. And the very first presentation I'd ever seen of yours was back in 2004. And I remember scribbling this on a piece of paper because I just thought it was so brilliant, such a beautiful microcosm where you show on a cellular level that a cell can either be in protection or it's in growth. It can't be both simultaneously. And I thought, wow, what an incredible metaphor for relationships that if we're living in a defended place, in an argumentative place, in a combative place, we can never really grow together. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, basically, look, uh, we, we have a built-in system called the biological imperative, which is the drive to survive. Every organism from bacteria up to humans is, has this imperative. Biology doesn't find where it is, but it's built in to life. So, you know, uh, as I go back and usually say, look, the most primitive organism, bacterium, uh, if you try and kill it, it's not going to go, okay, kill me. Even a bacterium will do everything to stay alive. There's a drive. And survival then recognizes how I fit into the world. Am I part of the good team or the bad team or my asset or problem, whatever? Uh, this is our survival is based on how we fit in. If we start to be compromised in the sense of um, who we think we are. That's a threat to our survival. And when we get into a threat, the first thing to do is get in protection. I say, what does that mean? I say, well, uh, started off, there's growth and protection. Let me just say, these are uh, in response to the stimuli in the world. If there's a positive stimulus out there, which enhances your vitality and your growth, you will go to that stimulus and you will go with open arms, take it in, assimilate it, whether it's love or nutrition, whatever it is that can enhance your vitality and viability, you will go to the stimulus, open arm, take it in, assimilate. I go, yeah, that's growth. But if that stimulus is in any way a threat, you don't go to the stimulus, you go away from the stimulus and you close yourself down. That's called protection. So I said, well, wait, growth is go to the stimulus. Protection is go away from the stimulus. Growth is be open to assimilate the stimulus. Protection is closed to prevent it. I said, you can't be open and closed at the same time. You can't move forwards and backwards at the same time. So at any moment, our life is based on whether we perceive ourselves in growth or we perceive ourselves in protection. And then the problem about that in relationships is when someone, when you get into an argument and you get attacked because of a behavior you didn't even see you had, <laughs> that's the other part, you didn't even see it, but you've just been attacked. Oh my God, I am being threatened. An attack means I'm not suitable, I'm not worthy, uh, you know, whatever it is. If, if you're in an argument, the other person's, your perception of the other person is that I don't fit, <laughs> I'm wrong. And the idea is, what will that do? Allow you to open up and say, okay, let's take the stimulus in. No, conventional is close yourself down, wall yourself off, and separate from the situation. Okay? So when the, we are in relationship and we're operating from those very negative programs and our partner responds to that negative program, we didn't see the program, but what did we just see? My God, we just got attacked. You got attacked, you're gonna protect yourself. How do you protect yourself? I don't know what you're talking about. You're wrong, you know, whatever it is, you're gonna defend as best you can. And I go, 
you don't even know what the hell you're defending against because the behavior you just did, you didn't even see it yourself. So there's a problem right there. Uh, and so the relationships uh, are very much dependent on moment to moment growth versus protection. Growth is when we're in love and we're expressing the harmony and the joy of being together. And that is growth beyond anything. That's the good vibes of love. But in contrast, if an argument shows up, that's completely the opposite behavior because the opposite says when you're in an argument, there's one person, there's the other person, they're separate. We're not together anymore. And as a separate entity, I need to protect myself because apparently you are saying I'm not a good person and I, I'm going to, you know, I challenge that. <laughs> of course, I didn't see the negative behavior I just expressed, so uh, I could be totally wrong, but nobody recognized that part of it. They just recognize I'm being threatened. And so in a relationship, can a relationship grow or a relationship fall apart? Relationship grows when the two individuals in a relationship come together in harmony and support each other to enhance the vitality of the system. Relationships fall apart when a protection response is uh, called for when one is attacking another. And it doesn't have to be, it's not a physical attack, it just has to be a, a mental attack. <laughs> that wasn't right. You were wrong. <laughs> That's a, oh, that was a bad behavior. And it's like, uh, and now I have to protect myself because it's like, you're challenging my, my who I am. And all of a sudden, that argument is, is not bringing people together. That argument is immediate separation at that point. And it was wonderful because in the early days when Margaret and I were really trying to work out this understanding, we would have some arguments in the beginning because our programs weren't totally compatible at that time. And Margaret was so cool because in one of these arguments, if we blow out and be separate from each other, she would go into the bathroom and look in the mirror and just get true to herself and say, do you want to be in love or not? And all of a sudden, yeah, I want to be in love. Then the argument wasn't worth it. And she would come back and I'd be in my boy state, which because boys are general, general, but we get into that. We don't talk. Girls get into it. They want to talk. There's already a problem right there. You know, it's like, I don't want to hear it. She wants to tell me and stuff like that. Uh, but then it got to the point where all she said was, let me just sit next to you. Let, let's just let me put my, my hand on your knee or something. Just nothing more. Just to sit still and not put the problem in any bigger perspective at that moment, which gave me the time to calm down so we could be close together again. And so it takes at least one of the people in the mm, couple yeah. to, to make a move, you know, and it was really wonderful because she didn't try to change me. She, she just said, look, let's just stay connected. And that was a physical connection. And as long as we stay connected, the relationship was still present. And this was a really important uh, action on her part to help me get through my programming and my inability to communicate. Because at the end of all that, I would actually say, thank you, Margaret, for holding on to this thing. And thank you for your patience. I will come around. It starts out this way. I separate. I need to stew. I'll come around. So thank you for your patience with me. And inevitably, those periods got less and less and the period of time got shorter and shorter. Too. The beautiful part is uh, there's no makeup sex in my life at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
fantastic. All right. Well, is there anything else that you would like to add, especially in the realm of intimacy and relationships? Oh, absolutely. Because as I said, the chemistry of the blood determines the genetics and the behavior of the system. That's what the cloning experiments said. And then I say, but what's the difference between being in love and not being in love? I said, oh, it's my God, it's profound chemical differences are gone. When you're in love, you have a lot of oxytocin, which by definition is bonding chemicals. So I want to be in love because I'm bonding. And this is really great. When you're out of love, that chemical stops really coming out. And now the relationships is a little more fractured and frazzled than before. Uh, being in love releases dopamine, which is pleasure. Of course, we're here on this planet not to hurt, but to be in pleasure, to enjoy the garden. So love puts that into it. Love puts in the uh, uh, oxytocin. Love puts in growth hormone. I said, what's growth hormone? I said, exactly what its name is. This hormone enhances your growth. I go, why is it relevant? Because when you're in love, the chemistry of your blood with the growth hormone in it is promoting the vitality of life. So all of a sudden it says, yeah, it's not just being friends with each other, but love at an intimate level is perhaps the best medicine. As we started off with at some point, there's a pharmacy in there and love is a prescription for health and vitality. Uh, and if we could get past the damn programming issue, then love doesn't have to be just between, you know, the, the other, when I talk about love and honeymoon effect, of course I use people and relationships as a foundation because that's most people experience. I say, but love is a lot more than just relationship with people. You know, if you're a gardener, that's a lot of love. Put your hands in the dirt and create life or you're a, a chef and you're cooking food with the love and joy that you're putting into that. And I go, Whatever it is that gives you that love is the break from living in a program. The moment you're in that love, whether you're cooking or making love with a partner, you are not on the negative program. You're enhancing yourself with the inherent pharmaceuticals of your own brain to enhance our lives. So the prescription is just very simple. Be in love. Boom. <laughs> And then healing will come across this entire world. And, and that's really, you know, like a simple prescription. I love it. That's the best prescription ever. <laughs> Thank you so much. I've loved absorbing and hearing all of your wisdom and information. It's wonderful. Thank you for being here. Well, I so appreciate it because uh, you're essentially, if you think about it, the pharmacist, aren't you? You're, you're helping people with their prescriptions. I like to think of myself as the best doctor ever. I give people their prescriptions for everything from sexual techniques, go home and have more sex, go home and have this kind of sex, go home and talk to each other and then facilitate having more intimacy in sex. So yes, I like to say that I'm the drug dealer, but in the most positive way. Very positive. There's no vision of coronavirus when you're having good sex. 
<laughs> so, well, you know, I like I talk about the immunity of not just our biology, but when we're really in that place of deep love and connection and intimacy. And because the sexual connection creates an even deeper level of intimacy and openness, which to me is the growth state you're talking about, we're even more immune. We're immune to germs and diseases, but also to you know, additional programming where I think we're more immune to our own subconscious programming. We're recreating a new and, you know, from the conscious mind more and more and from other people's opinions and ideas and thoughts and news media stuff. We're immune to all of these things. We create this beautiful kind of like a cocoon, you know, this radiate radiance that insulates goodness, attracts goodness and repels negativity. I agree 100% with that one. That's a beautiful mission. <laughs> Fabulous. There you have it. I am indeed the best doctor with the best medicine in the world. I agree with Lipton that we need to clear our subconscious programming that blocks us from experiencing our true potential. As I've said, this extends from family and cultural programming and also from traumatic experiences that we have and we collect over our lifetimes. All of these things layer over and obscure a person and a relationship's true potential. And this is where the idea of conscious relationships comes in, where two people have the commitment to growth and evolution together. They realize that each has unconscious blocks and patterns, and they work on them as they come up, practicing not taking things personally or being offended, but instead using these as opportunities to heal and resolve what has lain in storage for years, decades, or even lifetimes. We do it together. And there is no greater alchemizing agent than the holy fuck. When we bring our conscious attention, love, sexual energy, and openness to the table, or the bed, or the kitchen counter, we move through issues at light speed, quantum speed. We dissolve them and transform into the highest versions of ourselves, leaving behind our wounds and the dross and the defenses of the little self. We open into love. We live in flow, and we become immune to all but our own and a divinely channeled truth. That is the power of the holy fuck. My Coming Together for Couples Salon is a sexual and spiritual guide for the new millennium. This is your ultimate teachings to consciously coming together. We explore all things block clearing, subconscious programming, and reprogramming, communication, full body orgasms, energy orgasms, vaginal orgasms, prostate orgasms, and how to navigate masculine and feminine energies to create the most epic chemistry in your lives, even when it's been long gone. You can check out my free video series for coming together at my website at kimanami.com under sexual savant salons and then look for coming together i have a three-part video series you can watch with home play exercises you can try tonight and the coming together salon itself which is my 10-week online program for lovers opens for registration in mid-april are you coming 
Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe and also leave a review and send someone else the gift of a healthy libido and an off the charts love life by sharing this episode with them. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, many happy orgasms.